Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Matt Weibel. I'm the Director of Government Affairs at the Cato Institute. I'll give brief introductory remarks as we let people filter in and get settled. The title of today's Capitol Hill briefing is Parental Leave. Is there a case for federal action? And we have four panelists with us today. Vanessa Brown Calder, she's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. On your chairs, you have a policy analysis that she wrote on this topic um, that was released on October 2nd. Uh, so everyone has a copy of that. We also have Emily Eakins, the director of polling at the Cato Institute. Emily will give us a sneak peek of some poll results that she has um, on the topic of parental leave, which will be released uh, in the next week or two. So we'll get a sneak peek at those before anybody else does. We'll also have Veronique DeRugy speaking. She's a senior research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And finally, Rachel Gresler, who's a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, once everyone has finished speaking, we'll have some time, hopefully, for Q&A. Uh, please wait until you're called on. And if you could stand up, wait for a microphone so everybody can hear uh, and identify your name and affiliation, that would be very helpful to us. And with that, Vanessa Brown Calder will start us off. Well, I'm very excited to be speaking to everyone today about um, a very topical issue, paid parental leave. This is an issue that's garnered a lot of attention over the past couple of years, and I think it's one that will continue to garner attention over the coming years here. So I hope that these will all be helpful presentations as you try to think about paid parental leave. A couple of things just up front to get us started. If you have any questions about my presentation, I'm obviously going to have to move through a lot of material quickly, then you can probably find answers in my policy analysis paper, which is on your seat. You can also find it on the Cato website, and it has a similar name. Um, I think it's called Parental Leave. Is there a case for government action? Finally, just to clarify before we get moving here, there are two different ways to provide paid parental leave, and one way is through the private sector. Um, companies can provide it voluntarily. Another way is through the public sector, um, and I just want to clarify that I'm really today, I'm talking about the public sector. I'm talking about public interventions into the provision of paid parental leave. And while I do think that there are benefits for providing paid leave privately and um, that there are benefits both to employees and to employers for doing that. I'll be focusing on the consequences of government-supported paid leave in this presentation. Okay, so just to get everybody started here and make sure we're on the same page, I'll give you a brief lay of the land. Um, in 1993, Congress passed the Family and Medical Leave Act, or FMLA, which provided 12 weeks of unpaid leave to the majority of workers, um, and also job protection, and that's in the case of birth or adoption or medical reasons. Um, some states have also introduced paid family leave policies since that time. A variety of states and also the District of Columbia has done that, and many more have introduced legislation, although they haven't implemented it or passed a bill yet. We're really focusing here today on federal interventions into paid family leave. And so, just to get you up to speed, at the federal level, if you don't already know, congressional Democrats have introduced the Family Act, which would, would provide 12 weeks of paid family leave, um, and it is funded through a payroll tax on employees and employers. And also, Senator Rubio has his own plan, which will be talked about in a little bit more detail by subsequent um, panelists here. I thought that the easiest way to, well, I wanted to discuss some counterintuitive findings, or what I think are counterintuitive findings in my policy analysis paper, and I think that probably the easiest way to do that is to break the information down into five myths of paid parental leave, and I wanted to go through that, of government-supported paid parental leave. The first myth that I often encounter um, when I'm talking to people about paid parental leave is that just 15% of employees have access to paid parental leave benefits. This doesn't seem to be true when you look at a variety of federal and uh, even public polling data on the matter. Here you can see a graph. On the y-axis, it's the percentage of first-time mothers that have access to leave starting in 1961 and going all the way to 2008. And as you can see, that number has ticked up over time. There's certainly an upward trajectory there. 
The last time when only 15% of mothers had access to paid parental leave is at a time that's not actually even measured on this graph. So you actually there wasn't a time where we measured this um, where just 15% had access to that. These numbers actually end in 2008. It's been a while since the US Census Bureau asked this question on the survey of income and program participation. But we do have reason to believe the numbers have increased since this time. Just over the past year, a variety of different private companies have provided paid leave voluntarily, including companies that employ low skill and um, low wage workers like McDonald's or Walmart or Starbucks, et cetera. Often people say that, or talk about paid parental leave as though paid parental leave could be provided by government and then nothing else would change in the labor market. That seems unlikely though because paid parental leave obviously introduces some new incentives. I think that one of the most obvious or likely things to change um, is actually the way that employee, employers compensate their workers. So what we would expect to see is that when paid parental leave, specifically something like the Family Act, is introduced, then employers will actually reduce the amount of wages and salary that they're providing to their workers in favor of benefits while keeping total compensation constant. And if they're not able to actually reduce wages as a result of the costs of paid parental leave, then they will probably actually substitute paid parental leave in for other types of benefits that they're already um, that they're already providing. They'll probably kind of substitute those two things. I think that this is probably a concern that we should all take seriously, given that worker wages have been, we hear a lot about worker wages stagnating. And so I think that probably um, either mandating or providing some type of government-supported paid leave plan is something that we would really want to think long and hard about as a result. So how much would paid leave cost workers in terms of wage reductions? Um, I've put together a handout with cost estimates for government paid leave from a variety of different sources, and you can find that. That's the orange sheet there on your seat. Um, you can also find it on the Cato website, as usual. We've estimated, we've used a variety of sources to estimate this, and we've kind of the average estimate is somewhere around $500 annually for the average worker is what it would cost to implement something like the Family Act. After doing some public polling, which Emily is going to talk about next, um, I do have reason to believe that actually these estimates probably underestimate the true costs of, of paid family leave, a paid family leave program. Um, Emily may get into that a little bit. Some individuals are probably willing to accept the costs of paid family leave, even if it's $500 annually or something like that, as long as those costs aren't going to grow over time. So some people would be willing to trade off $500 in wages um, as long as they know that it's not going to cost them more than that. But what actually we see with the history of paid leave elsewhere internationally is that most countries more than triple the length of their benefit um, over time. And so here on this graph, you can see in purple, purple shows you the number of weeks of leave that countries are providing in 1970. And in the blue, you can see what they're providing in 2016. Over that time period, 1970 to 2016, there was just one country that reduced the size of their paid leave entitlement. And that was Hungary, who reduced it by two weeks. But they had started out with 162 weeks. So a very generous policy to begin with, much more so than what we're talking about here today. And the average sort of increase um, was 40 weeks, actually, in benefit during that time period. Another aspect of the labor force that may change is actually the way that women engage with it and the way that employers engage with women. So government paid leave may 
first reduce women's qualifying work experience. It may make them more likely to be out of the labor force uh, for longer periods. And in fact, that's usually one of the selling points of paid leave is that it would do that, that actually women would be more likely to take more time off. In addition, um, it may give employers reason to be skeptical of hiring, training, or promoting women for that very reason, because they're going to be out of the workforce more likely uh, for a longer period of time. Why does this apply to women specifically? The reason for that is that even if you provide paid leave both to women and to men, women take the majority of paid leave by a long shot. And that's even true in cases where, you know, in Scandinavian countries and in other cases. Here you can see on this graph that US women far outpace their international counterparts on professional management measures. And this, um, according to Francine Blau and Lawrence Kahn, has to do with the fact that in the US there isn't a federal paid leave policy, whereas in these various other countries in the OECD, there is one. And so that seems to create new incentives both for women and potentially their employers in the way that they treat women. Likewise, American women are also more likely to be on executive committees than their European counterparts. And research suggests that actually on a wide variety of different measures like these, um, the differences between women's performance in the US and women's performance in other European countries or OECD countries is related to, to paid leave entitlements and to other um, women's work entitlements there that the US does not have. So finally, many people believe that in order to be pro-family, you must be pro-government supported paid leave. Um, I think that this is probably a little bit wrong, a, a wrong framing of the issue for a couple of reasons. One is that paid leave actually does probably harm certain types of families. So there are redistributive consequences, for instance, for male breadwinner families, likely these type of families would be redistributed away from in favor of maybe female breadwinner families. It's also true that for non-traditional families or for childless families, those families would be paying into a system that they would not benefit from. The other, the other issue here with this framing is that I think it just demonstrates a lack of imagination. There are lots of things that actually can be done to support families outside of creating a government-supported paid leave entitlement. And some of these would likely help quite a bit more. And I think we'll probably get into that a little bit more um, when we talk about polling again. Um, but just to give you a few ideas, I think that the major things that would really be helpful to many families and which could be done by con Congress or at the state level, um, first are liberalizing actually worker engagement with wor the workforce. So lib liberalizing labor regulations would be something that would be really important. Another thing that could be done is liberalizing childcare regulations to reduce the cost of care. As you're probably aware, childcare um, expenses last over many years, whereas paid leave is just a few months. So just intuitively, that's something where um, there's a lot more expense and a lot more pressure on families. And it does seem to be actually related to the way that low-income women and women generally um, decide to work or decide to go back and stay at home, they seem to do that as a result of these high childcare costs. And finally, I think that this could be framed a little bit differently. Rather, in, instead of in terms of creating a new government program, we could talk about it in terms of actually trying to encourage savings, and that's what universal savings accounts do do. I hope this helped to inform um, your views on the costs and consequences of government-supported paid leave, and I'll be glad to take your questions at the end. Thank you, Vanessa. Next, we'll have Emily Eakins from the Cato Institute. So thanks, Vanessa. It's such a pleasure to be with you this afternoon to be able to share with you some new results from a new Cato Institute paid leave national survey. We partnered with YouGov to collect a representative sample of, 12, of 1,700 Americans, and we just conducted it just a couple of days ago, so it hasn't been publicly released. You're the first to see some of these results. Um, so part of the inspiration for the survey is a lot of surveys have been conducted that find a lot of support for the idea of a federal 
paid leave program. However, once those surveys start asking a little bit about the details about, well, who's going to pay for it, how long, uh, for how much, then the public becomes a lot more divided. So Vanessa and I decided that it would be interesting to investigate some of the costs that she has found in her research on the cost of paid leave. How would people feel about a federal paid leave program if they also were aware of potential costs that go along with it? So just like all the other pollsters, we ask a question that's modeled after the Family Act, which would offer 12 weeks of paid leave um, to workers after the birth or adoption of a child or to deal with their own or a family member's serious illness. And just like the other pollsters, no costs are mentioned, and we find 74% support such a program. For among women, it goes up to 81%. So this is why a lot of people say a federal paid leave program is popular. Um, but we wanted to get at some of the costs, and here's part of the problem. We don't know exactly how much the Family Act or something similar to it would really cost. So what we decided to do is offer people a range of different costs, and we asked different people about different questions, so you're not getting peppered with lots of different cost estimates, to see how people would feel about this program if it cost, say, $200 a year or 450 and 1200 and I'll walk through the justifications for these for these ranges and what you can see is if it costs 200 a year in higher taxes a modest majority would still support it but once it gets to about 450 and above let alone 1200 then people turn against it including women men and women would oppose it if it got to $1200 a year in higher taxes okay so where is this coming from well, advocates of the Family Act or a federal paid leave program will tell you that it will really cost about $200 a year. Now, this is recognizing what, what economists know, that if an employer is paying part of that, that that gets passed right along to the employee. So let's just be honest about that. So $200 a year. Now, the problem is, is the bipartisan uh, working group, the AEI Brookings Working Group on Paid Family Leave, raised some questions about $200 really being enough to cover the cost of the program. We know government's track record in estimating costs. They tend to underestimate the cost. So what they write is that the, 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 the Family Act's true costs are probably higher than what they're estimating, and that right now, a t if, if we were to assume $200 being paid by the average worker, just to be clear, I should have said that earlier, the average worker, that would probably cover less than half of the, of the true costs of the program. And that's assuming uh, you know, take-up rates associated with the unpaid federal leave program that we currently have in place. So that's what we got, the 450 number. So 450 is probably a more realistic number. But there's reasons to even doubt the 450 number, and here's why. Because these calculations are based on the assumptions of how much people use of unpaid federal leave that currently exists under FMLA, the 1993 Act, and also less generous state-based family leave programs. So what happens when you have a federal paid leave that's more generous and gives 12 weeks of paid leave? So if you were to take those assumptions to, into account and assume people are um, taking closer to 12 weeks, um, and again, it's paid, then the true cost might actually be closer to 1200 So again, we need to take this into account. If we're going to, to establish a new program, let's be clear about what the cost will be and what people think about those various costs. We also wanted to ask about some other potential costs that research has shown is associated with federal paid family leave. The first one is that employer-provided benefits could be reduced. When people are asked if they would support this type of federal leave program if it meant that employers reduced other benefits they receive, like health care benefits and so forth, then people turn against it, actually more so than higher taxes. 68% would turn against it. Now, where does this come from? Well, economists, um, including Larry Summers and Jonathan Gruber, have studied the effects of government mandates on compensation that women receive, and they have found that the cost of those mandated benefits are usually borne 100%, almost 100%, by the workers themselves. So if we're going to, pat, if we're going to implement some sort of new cost on employers, if they don't cut wages, they could cut benefits. And that's something that's a little bit harder to see, but is incredibly important. If that were to happen, 68% would oppose. The next one um, about it, what if fewer women would become managers and get promoted? Now, my colleague Vanessa went into this a little bit, but I think it's worth repeating. 
So studies have shown that ex the expansion or introduction of government parental leave policies is associated with higher rates of unemployment of women of childbearing age, as well as reductions in promotions and being in positions of leadership and corporate power. So let's see that borne out in the data. So in the US, um, because the U.S. does not have expansive parental leave policies, many believe that this is part of the reason why women have more corporate power in the United States compared to Europe. As you can see here, I just, it's a similar chart to what Vanessa showed, but I'm just looking at Nordic countries and, um, Northern and Western European countries. American women are two to 14 times as likely to be in positions of, um, in managerial positions or executives compared to their Nordic counterparts. Similarly, American women are far more likely to be on executive committees. Now, what does that mean? That means that you're either the CEO or you're a direct report to the CEO. And researchers have, suggest that, have suggested that once you have three or more women in these types of positions, it starts to become the norm. And people start to assume that women are in positions of authority, just like men. Um, and that's very important. And we see that American women are more likely to hold these types of positions. And most likely, this has a lot to do with um, our parental leave policies or the lack thereof. And when we asked people, what, um, what if this meant if we had a paid federal leave policy that fewer women would become managers and get promoted? People turn against this type of policy. And one of the reasons for the, sh the, the major shift is that Democrats also turn against a federal paid leave policy if it resulted in fewer women having leadership roles and getting promoted. So when you look at the data, if you look at the crosstabs, a lot of Democrats would be willing to pay higher taxes. Republicans, if you mention taxes, even $200, they turn against it right away. But something like this, these types of costs are things that would turn off not just Republicans and independent voters, but also Democratic voters, including Democratic women. Um, we also found that if it required cuts to other government programs, that would also significantly reduce support and flip people against it. And in the interest of time, I'm going to just skip ahead and focus on one in particular. This cost at the very bottom. What if this, uh, this federal paid leave program meant that families who don't use the program would still have to pay higher taxes in order to pay for other people to use the program? So this is, in essence, a question about redistribution. Are you okay with these types of programs that involve redistribution, that people who have made family arrangements such that they would not need a federal paid leave program, should they still pay the costs so other people can benefit? This really riles up Republicans. This is something that gets at the heart of fairness for many Republicans, and so they turn against it, and so, does, um, so do Americans overall with 62% who oppose a federal leave program if it were to require people pay into it when they're not using it. But this is something that is not effective among Democrats. Democrats are far more okay with redistribution. And so when talking about the costs of a, of a federal paid leave program, redistribution concerns are really only important to independent voters and Republicans, but not as much for Democrats. So this is just a summary table where we look at the potential costs of a federal paid leave program that are actually justified based on research um, on the consequences of a federal paid leave program. And we see that the top three are if it required spending cuts, if fewer women became managers, and if employers reduced health care benefits. And the reason why these seem to be the most powerful is that this, these are costs that Democratic voters would be unwilling to pay. Basically, every cost we asked about, Republicans say, it's not worth it. Independence, as you can imagine, are in between. But these three things were most important to Democrats. So moving on, given that there are trade-offs associated with a federal paid leave program, are there all other alternatives that people would consider? Um, what would Americans think about parental leave savings accounts? Now, when you think about it, society has cultivated a culture that it has become normal and commonplace for people to encourage, even young people, to start saving for retirement, to save for a house down payment, um, to save for a car or a vacation or medical bills, to have those rainy day funds set aside. 
what if we, we cultivated a culture of saving early for parental leave? Now, I have a funny story to share with you. When I was, when I was preparing the slide and getting these images to show you on the slide, it was very easy for me to find lots of images um, representing saving for retirement, saving for your house down payment, and a college fund. But guess which one I couldn't find a single image for? Parental leave. I actually made that myself. I hope you like it. Um, there was no image for parental leave, and I think that that is indicative of the culture not yet having cultivated that idea that we can start encouraging young people at a, at a young age to start saving for parental leave, just as they start saving for other uh, expenses that they'll face in their life. So we asked about it on the survey. What do people think about this idea? What about a parental leave savings account or a universal savings account that, you could, that would have tax advantages that you could use if you needed to take family or medical leave? And s such a program is overwhelmingly popular. Um, 80% are in favor of uh, this type of universal savings account. And just to wrap up, I wanted to kind of zoom out for a moment and think about priorities. How important is paid, how, how important is a government paid leave program to Americans? Of all the things that people are dealing with as they balance work and family, how important on this list is a federally provided paid leave program? So we asked people which would be the best way to help you balance work and family. And what you see is that the overwhelming majority of people say that more flexible work schedules, the ability to work remotely or telecommute, and more affordable childcare options are really the most important things to them when it comes to balancing work and family. Now, 10% said that paid, more paid maternity and paternity leave is important to them, and that's also matter that also matters. But as you can see, most people are focusing on these other issues. Now, this is, among, of, this is among parents with children under 18. What about mothers of children under the age of three? We find a very similar pattern. For them, an overwhelming majority, their priorities are more affordable childcare options, more flexible work schedules, the ability to work remotely, and the ability to work part-time hours. So, for those who care about helping parents and families, this might be a useful place to start. Thanks. Thank you, Emily. Next, we'll have Veronique DeRuji from the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Can I move this? Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here. I'm uh, particularly delighted to be alongside those great scholars whom I've learned a lot from. And, and I, I feel actually I have to apologize because in a lot of my research, I use their research. So I feel, you know, it's, but anyway, I'll, 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 I'll try to do it anyway. Um, it's a pleasure to be here to talk about an issue that is definitely getting, uh, getting some steam. And, and unusually, it is getting some steam from the conservative side. I think Emily and, and Vanessa have done a very good job to talk about the ways that family uh, leave programs at the federal level uh, would backfire. A lot of conservatives understand this. It's a huge literature, actually, not necessarily just focusing on, on family leaves, but family-friendly um, uh, policies uh, have backfired. I mean, it's you just have to look at Europe and the way they have penalized uh, uh, women. I think it's no mystery to a lot of conservatives and fiscally um, uh, responsible or uh, conservatives. So this is why this is an interesting time is that conservatives are actually trying to come up with an idea that is, they claim, not a government solution to this problem that they see. And the reason why I find Vanessa's work so important is like if you actually want to find a, an appropriate solution to a problem, you actually have to understand really well what the problem is. And there's a lot of ways we're talking about this issue as if there's no paid leave provided by the private sector. As if there is a, a, a you know, a market failure, if you want, and, and I think uh, Vanessa's research actually really kind of shows that it's, it's not the case. 
while acknowledging that, yeah, they are a, a small share of the population of women who don't get paid leave. But if you redefine the question this way, you actually have a better chance to find a solution. So the non-supposedly government solution that conservatives are pushing right now is one that would actually not at all mandate a paid leave program. And it would only, they tell us, use social security as a means to deliver the benefits. And the idea is basically, as a young parent, as a, a new mother, you collect social security payment today and you pay it back decades down the road by retiring later. And it does, you know, I mean, it does have the advantage it's not mandatory. Um, it's not something that is forced onto uh, the private sector, even though let's recognize that for the private sectors that doesn't provide paid leave, the financial aspect is not the only aspect of paid leave. There's also a time aspect when your employee is not there, even though it doesn't have, you don't have to pay for that employee's wage, you still have to find someone to do that job for them or, or, or do without it. So the question for conservatives and libertarian and, and, and fiscally uh, conservative people is, would this solution of using Social Security be a good alternative? And there are, there are two ways, in my opinion, to think about this. The first one is, is Social Security an appropriate uh, way to provide this benefit? And the second one is, like, should we, as fiscally conservative people, like it or not? And the answer that I'm going to try to explain very shortly, and we have a report produced uh, uh, that I, I wrote with my colleagues, uh, Jason Fickner and uh, Chuck Blauhaus at the Mercatus Center, you have it on your chairs, goes in detail into this. The answers to those two questions is no. So it's the, the first, I'm gonna address the first question. Why do I believe, why do we believe and make the case in this report that Social Security is not a good way to provide this benefit? Social Security is a mess. I mean, we know there are just a lot of problems. However, there are qualities to Social Security and the way the program was designed that we should care about as fiscal conservative. So for instance, even though it is financed as an income transfer program, there is, um, it is a requirement that you contribute first before you get your benefits. Basically, you pay taxes throughout your career and then you'll catch the benefit. You get the benefits later. I mean, so contribute first and, and earn your benefits for later that you will collect. Um, there's also the fact that in aggregate, the program um, will only pay taxes collected times interest. And obviously, the, the disability program of Social Security blurs the line uh, a little, yet there is still a work requirement. It's much smaller and you, because you don't get disability until you really cannot work at all, for the most part, there is still this connection of work, contribute, and get benefit later. Now, the program as proposed where you use Social Security to get paid leave uh, today, turn this on its head. Because effectively what you're doing, because childbearing usually ha happens at the beginning of your career before you've been able to earn um, that benefit, I don't wanna call it an entitlement because it's not, right? Basically, you get the benefits today with a promise that you will pay it back decades later by working longer. So why is, this, why is this problematic? Well, first, again, it changes that relationship between work and benefit, contribution and benefit by reversing it. But the other thing is that we have to understand there's no savings in Social Security. I mean, um, it's not as if there's actually a pile of money that is actually there that you can tap. Just think about, for instance, if you were suddenly allowed to use your uh, IRA to start collecting benefits, or you could use it 
for paid leave today, there is actually money there. Whereas it's very different for Social Security. You have the promise of a benefit later, later and actually decades after you've contributed to the program. It's not as if like, so, but basically using Social Security would mean that we would tap into non-savings and promise to repay it later. There's another problem that we've seen repeated over and over again when it comes to government, and this idea of giving a benefit today and offset that benefit later with spending cuts or financing in this case, right, with longer retiring later, it just never works. Think about it this way. It's like asking a toddler, right, to eat their desserts now and then eat their spinach. I mean, there are granted a few toddler who may love spinach and may hold their end of the bargain, but I assume that it wouldn't happen very often. And it's a real problem. I mean, we, we see it over and over and over again. I mean, Congress can't even hold uh, its end of the bargain when it actually signs spending caps, keeps breaking them, the sequester caps over and over and over again, and it doesn't have to wait decades to start breaking them, right? The, 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 uh, the ink wasn't even dry on that on that deal that they were already lifting the budget caps. So this is a promise that's not really credible and it's really problematic, especially because you're basically tapping into benefits and not in, that there are non-existent that haven't been funded yet, right? The other problem is on the person who would actually collect the benefits now, there's no actually real way for that person to assess the real trade-offs. As you know, 2034, I mean, Social Security trust funds will go dry. That will mean a cut in 20, of 21% in benefits. They will, Congress will have to come up with a solution. Let's say that that solution is, you know, moving the retirement age and imagine that you have already before this collecting and thought, okay, it's okay, I'm gonna take those benefits today and instead of retiring at 67, I'm gonna retire at 67 and a half. Well, the bargain is made uh, post uh, 2034, 2035, whenever that happens, and now the new retirement age is 2065. And, uh, 2069, sorry, uh, sorry. 69, 69, <laughs> you have to retire at 69. Well, that changes, that can changes, like that person can say rightfully so, this is not what I committed to. I committed to retiring at 67 and a half, not 69 and a half, right? And how do you get then those commitments that were made to be changed? There's no real way to enforce them. There are many more reasons why it is problematic to use um, Social Security. Um, at first, it, it would just really make the financing extremely complicated. But there's another reason, and it actually goes to that other question of whether we, fiscally conservative people, libertarians, um, would want that system in place. So the idea here, we are told that on paper, Right, this system does not actually grow the size of government, right? Because on paper, if you look at the long term of the program, the long horizon of the program, you get the benefits, but then you actually pay it later so it balances out. But the truth of the matter is like in the short term, uh, first let me say, it is still an, an increase in the scope of government, right? This is an area where the government wasn't involved and now it is. Right, so let's put that immediately on the side. It is an, in, an increase immediately on, this, on the scope of government. But on the size, in the short term, right, it requires Social Security to pay benefits immediately, to start paying benefits immediately to whomever will actually demand to collect these benefits. And there are two ways to do this, is either you're going to accelerate the insolvency of the program Right, that time where benefits are going to be cut because the trust funds will be dry, or you have to use general revenues to fill the gap for these benefits that are not grounded in contributions that have already been made. So in the short term, for sure, it actually grows the size of government. Right? 
But then let's actually think again about reality, the world where we actually live. This notion that we can commit to an idea that people are going to collect this benefit today and then later pay it, it just doesn't hold water. There's this real slippery slope argument to be made there. First, let's talk about conservatives. Conservatives, are, I can hear them from now, from here. They're going to be saying when it's time for those parents who've taken the benefits decades before to actually retire later, they'll say it's so unfair that parents have to retire later. We should change this. There's an unfairness in retirement towards parents. I can hear it. The other thing is the Democrats who, who are already making the case right now are saying this is unfair to seniors. That seniors would have, some seniors would have to actually retire later is just really um, unfair. And they're already saying this. It's like you said, effectively you're taking, you're taking benefits away from seniors, future seniors to give to parents today. Politicians are sens sensitive, very sensitive to interest groups. They're going to be sensitive to these interest groups. So that's the first thing. There's no world, in my opinion, where that credible, that commitment to paying it at the back end is going to hold. But the other problem is also once you open Social Security to the possibility of using the benefits today to fund paid leave, why not also fund college tuition, unemployment benefit, taking care of an aging parent. There are all these things, right? Why just paid leave? And effectively, those interest groups will be really powerful. And if you've done it for parents, why not doing for, do it for every, everyone else? So there's a real slippery slope, which means that it's absolutely not credible to say that in the long run, this is not a solution that will not only just grow the scope of government, but also the size of government. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that, and then we can you know, go forward with Q&A. Thank you, Veronique. Lastly, but not least, we'll have Rachel Gresler from the Heritage Foundation. Thank you, everyone. And I just wanted to say that while we approach this, a lot of us looking at the research and the facts, um, I think it's also important to think about what do we actually want a paid family leave program to do for the people who are taking it. And so I come to this both looking you know, at statistics and research, but also having benefited from taking multiple paid family leaves myself and knowing how that interaction works um, through different employers throughout my career and being able to benefit from those. And I want people to have access to paid family leave. I mean, I think it's a tremendous benefit. It's important to be able to be home with new children. It's important to be able to take care of family members. And I think that the best way to do that really is when it comes from the employers. And so I'm gonna talk a little bit just about a federal program versus employer-based ones, but I did just wanna follow up quickly first because Veronique was talking about the Social Security paid family leave proposal, and we have a model at the Heritage Foundation, so we were able to look at that. And the biggest um, reason I think not to implement this is it would expand the size and scope of government, and I think there's no way that it would ever remain limited as it says it is, that you would have to pay back the benefits these would be lower income mothers, often single mothers, that would be the most likely to take the program and are we really gonna um, say that they have to retire early whereas everybody else doesn't? So when we said, okay, what if we eliminated the requirement that you actually had to retire early? Is this cost free anymore? Um, and no, it becomes about $115 billion over 10 years. And then what about the argument that when people are taking this well, for the lower income workers, it's not really enough because they can't afford you know, a 50% of their paycheck. They need their whole paycheck if they're going to be able to take time off. So what if we say it's not social security level benefit anymore, but you're gonna get 100% of your pay? Well, then the costs rise to almost $200 billion over 10 years. Um, and then what if we expand it to not just parental leave, but also family leave, and then you're up at like 240 billion, but that's not even taking into account the increased access. That's assuming that only the people that take it today would still take it. And of course, if you have you know, totally free, government-provided, paid family leave, we're gonna increase the number of people who are taking it. Um, but now just to look at 
you know, a federal program versus employer-based program. I look at this in terms of you know, my own interaction with taking programs and just thinking through it. If you're going to take paid parental leave, family leave or something, what does that look like to you approach your employer and say, I need this leave versus do you want to approach the government? How, how would workers go and apply it? It's fairly obvious in a case of parental leave if somebody is pregnant or not, um, but what if you're having to take time off to care for a spouse, a child, a relative, how do you get verification ahead of time? You, particularly low-income workers, need that benefit right away. If somebody gets sick and they have to leave and take off two weeks starting tomorrow, they're not gonna have a paycheck for two weeks if it's from a government program. Yes, it might come back in later, they'd be able to apply for it and potentially get it, but the people that we're trying to target is those who are the low-income workers who have the least access to these programs through their employers. Um, there's also just the issue of who benefits from paid family leave. Um, the employer benefits because it's more likely that the employee is going to come back um, to the company and there are significant costs to having to hire new workers and employers recognize this and that's I think why we've seen increased policies. And then the employee benefits. They get a paycheck for work that they're not doing. So should it be the government as a whole? I mean what is their benefit to having workers have paid family leave. It's, it's a nice thing to do. We want everybody to have access to it, but it's better to tie the cost to those people who are directly benefiting from it. Um, if we implemented a federal program and the government starts paying instead of the employers, what's going to happen? Um, there was a hearing in July on paid family leave over in the Senate and Deloitte was there and they testified they have a pretty generous paid family leave program. They operate all around the country. There are about five states that have existing programs. So they said, absolutely, we're gonna, we, our workers, we make them apply through the state first, they get their state level benefits and then we top it off. So you're gonna have the effect that it's a windfall benefit to any company that's already providing paid family leave because they're gonna have the workers use the federal program first and then they're only gonna pay above you know, whatever the federal program doesn't based on their own policy. And then going forward, any company that doesn't offer a policy today, why would they start one if a federal pro um, program exists? And we have seen, particularly after the recent tax cuts, all these companies coming out, you know, lower wage um, worker employing companies, Walmart, Starbucks, Lowe's, Home Depot, I think it's the top 20 companies in the US in terms of employment now all have a paid family leave policy. And enacting a federal one would cut that off. There's no reason to have your own employer-based policy if the federal government, i.e. taxpayers as a whole, will pay for that. Um, there's also the issue here of what is the value of paid family leave I was talking about as to the employee and the employer. What about stay-at-home parents? So if you take paid family leave and your employer pays you for that, you are essentially getting paid to stay at home with your child or with your family member. What about all the people who do that and don't get paid just because they don't go to work? So would a federal policy then say, well, every time that you have a child, we're also gonna pay you? Because you can't imply that the value of somebody staying home with their child or their family member is only valuable if they're a worker. You know, there's no difference in that time spent at home with the person, but you're saying we only value it if you work. Um, so that's an important thing to think about going forward. And then just looking at solutions. I know some of you have talked about them, but we do want to be able to do something. We can't just say no federal leave, try to get it some other way. Um, there are ways that we can help workers, and I think the focus should be on looking at those who don't have access to paid family leave now. So in general, you know, lower taxes, lower regulations certainly help. Um, the taxes are pretty obvious. But the regulations, it's not just the cost in dollar terms to employers, it's having to comply with things. Um, if you had to fill out all this paperwork when there's a federal program, because obviously there has to be some check and balance so that it's not you know, widespread fraud and abuse, something's gonna happen there, employer's gonna have to verify, um, they're gonna be worried, you know, can I deny, what if I ended up firing somebody um, unrelated to their paid leave claim, you know, it just, a lot of regulatory hassle that would come on board there, better off just leaving them to set their own policies. Um, universal savings accounts, you know, you can have a specific pay parental saving account, but why not just have a universal saving account that can be for anything, college, paid family leave, retirement. Um, 
if not that, then at least allow workers to access their 401ks for paid family leave. That's something they already have an account um, that exists in law today. You could tap that. But of course, the lowest income workers tend to not have 401ks or other savings accounts and might not have the capacity to save. Um, one policy, it's actually a legislative um, proposal already out there, is the Working Families Flexibility Act. What that does is it allows private companies and private sector workers to benefit from something that public sector workers already have. So if you are an hourly paid worker making less than $23,000 a year, you're subject to overtime rules. So any hour you work overtime, you get paid time and a half. Well, state and local workers are allowed to choose, do I want that pay or would I rather have an hour and a half off of paid time off from work versus the pay for every hour of overtime I work. Um, it's allowed for state and local workers for whatever reason. It's not allowed for private sector workers. The only basis would be assuming that the government knows better than the worker what's more valuable to the worker. Um, so if we open that up, it would be fairly easy for somebody to work you know, two hours of overtime for a year and accumulate like two weeks off of paid leave that they could use, um, whether that's for parental leave or family leave. Another option that um, Heritage has supported in terms of the disability insurance program would be an optional payroll tax credit if you are an employer and you offer private disability insurance. Disability insurance is actually a way that a lot of workers gain access to paid leave, particularly maternity leave, um, because most are required to include that. And so if you allowed workers or employers to have a payroll tax credit, if they provide disability insurance, short-term disability, that automatically opens the door to having access to that maternity leave benefit. And then just the final option to consider is allowing states to use their existing unemployment insurance programs. And so you could just stipulate that they are allowed to consider maternity or whatever it is, uh, unemployment claim. Um, you would just want to be careful if you did that to not have them experience rate it. You don't want a situation where you're going to have employers discriminating against the people who are most likely to take these claims, women of childbearing ages. So you just have to say this component of it is not experience rated. You're not going to pay a higher rate if you hire um, a 25-year-old woman versus you know, a 50-year-old man. So those are some of the policies that I think that we can be for and should support. And you can do that alongside um, just being creating an environment where more businesses are going to open up policies um, for their workers. And that's really, in my experience, has been the best way to be able to be flexible and accommodating and to say, yes, you can take this leave off and I know it's credible. I know that you really need to care for this family member as opposed to a big government program that's going to have to inevitably you know, go after fraud and abuse and say, are you really taking care of the family member? What is it that you're doing? Um, just explosive in terms of costs. So if you have any questions, I'd be happy to take them or I guess anyone else on the panel. Thank you. We have five minutes left for Q&A, so it will have to be pretty quick. I just want to thank the panelists uh, and say that uh, this, this briefing is timely and it's important because we're not just saying no to an idea. We're, we're presenting alternatives and other ways to uh, address the issue going forward. So with that, we'll take uh, questions. Yep, right here. Um, we have a microphone coming around. Hi, um, my name is Sarah Wilson. I'm an intern at the Senate Finance Committee. Um, and I just wanted to ask, because you presented um, affordable childcare options as something that a lot of people support, if any of your organizations have a stance on how that would could be executed, or if just you personally have a stance on how that could be executed? Um, so, so Cato has written a little bit about this. I would refer you to um, Ryan Bourne's research. He just recently published something on um, affordable childcare and how that could actually be implemented. A lot of the issue is an occupational licensing issue. So at the state level, um, states tend to create all sorts of laws around who can or can't provide care. Um, we're actually seeing this in DC right now. There's been efforts to increase the educational requirements for daycare workers. 
And as you may be aware, actually, it's very expensive to have a child, an infant in daycare already in DC. That cost is something around $23,000 on average um, annually. So it's very expensive. Um, and actually, increasing the requirements for care makes it so that there are fewer child care or daycare workers that qualify um, for those jobs. And so you basically reduce the supply. Um, and whenever you reduce the supply of something and the demand is constant or growing, then of course you're going to have exploding costs. And so that's basically what we're seeing both in DC and other places. And so um, that's certainly something that could be looked into is kind of the occupational, rec uh, occupational licensing aspect of it. There's also um, oftentimes there are student to staff ratios and that's also something that drives up the cost of daycare. Um, what we see is that those ratios actually don't seem to be tied very closely to the quality of affordable childcare. And so with all of these things, I think that often these are indicators that kind of like higher income people like to look for when they're looking for quality childcare. Um, but what we have to realize is that not everybody is higher income. Some people need to be able to afford childcare and need to be able to put their child in childcare so that they can go and work a job. So definitely something to look at. I just wanted to add a little bit that I agree with everything Vanessa said. Um, I've had six kids go through daycare, and this is largely a state issue, so they're the regulator of state programs, um, and that comes into play a lot here. We basically priced out lower income families from being able to afford licensed childcare, and so they end up putting it in, I mean, you could call it illegal childcare because they're unlicensed. Um, but nevertheless, some of the ridiculous regulations, you know, in Maryland, they don't comply with this because it's pretty costly and impossible to, but they said that all daycares are supposed to have an emergency vehicle on hand with car seats for every child in the center in case of something like a terrorism threat. So imagine having to go out and buy a bus and 20 childcare seats and all this stuff that's just gonna sit there. Um, this is not something they can afford that would significantly drive up the cost. So there's all sorts of things like that that just don't contribute to the value of the child care. I think we have one uh, time for one more quick question. Nobody wants to be last? Um, you had all, you know, beautifully illustrated some of the problems with the federal program, and Ms. Gessler, you had mentioned some options to kind of address family leave, but in a way that doesn't create a, a problem with our entitlement programs. Can you talk about some achievable things that the 116th Congress could do to act on um, some of these op opportunities? Sure. Um, as I mentioned, there's the legislation that's already out there, the Working Families Flexibility Act. Um, this would help the lowest income people without having to say you've got to set aside more money or anything. It's just giving them the option. If you want to work a couple extra hours per week, you can bank up time instead of having to bank pay. Um, the other things I talked about, universal savings account, any way that you can increase access to savings for this parental leave, whether it's an entirely new account or just saying, look, you can tap your existing account, even if workers aren't saving on their own. Some of them might have an employer that has been contributing to that account. And then I just reiterate the taxes and the regulatory environment. The way that employers are going to be able to offer these plans to workers, and as I said, I really feel that's the best option for the worker themselves is to go through the employer and not through a federal government program. The way they can do that is if they have lower costs through taxes and the regulatory environment. Thank very quickly. Um, in thinking about these issues and these benefits, I think one of the things we have to actually think about is that every uh, added benefits, right, is on top of the wages pay, and there's always a trade-off between those two things. And you know, with, uh, we have a lot of people talking about how wages haven't grown over time. But when you actually look at total compensation, which is actually what the employer pays and, and the values he sees in employees, it actually has grown quite dramatically, is that the, uh, the, the benefits part has actually grown quite significantly and with increasing the cost of healthcare and things like this, right, that, that benefits, the benefits, this fringe benefit part is starting to really add up 
and consume a larger and larger share of total compensation. And so in thinking about benefits, whether they paid leave or what, whatever benefit, people have to start thinking really long and hard about this trade-off between benefits and take-home pay, the money you leave, that you leave within your pocket, and, and, and not assume that these two things are disconnected. I would urge, really, people to think about this because there is no free lunch ever. And when the economy is growing, that added benefit on top may actually not hinder the ability of wages to grow. But if the economy isn't, there's a moment where even though these are for valued employees, it may actually hinder the growth of that wage you take home. And that's where the minimum wage, if you were to have, say, a federal $15 minimum wage, that would push down all other forms of compensation and make it impossible for a lot of employers to provide paid family leave. Just to reiterate a little bit what Rachel mentioned, um, I think that actually during tax reform 2.0, um, they were actually looking at or they had included universal savings accounts into that, um, into that plan. Unfortunately, only 25, you can only put away $2,500 annually into those universal savings accounts, and I don't think those have gone anywhere. Um, certainly in other countries, people have much more generous um, plans as far as the amount that workers could put away into a universal savings account, so that might be something to look at a little bit more. I know Chris Edwards at Cato has written about that. I think in Canada, you can put away $25,000 annually into an account like that. So should think about making those more generous and also actually implementing that part of tax reform 2.0. We have his report here. Oh, yeah. yeah, you should oh, have great. Chris's report with you. And with that, we'd like to thank our panelists, and we'd like to thank you for attending today's Cato Institute briefing. Thanks.